0: Today's episode is supported by Vivo Barefoot, whose mission is very close to my heart. There's something incredibly powerful about feeling the ground beneath your feet. It's more than just like walking or running, it's about forming a connection with the earth, a connection that most modern footwear has unfortunately severed. Vivo Barefoot aims to mend this disconnect by making footwear that's wide, thin and flexible, enabling natural movement. Born from a long lineage of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot carries a rich heritage of craftsmanship and a deep understanding of what makes footwear truly beneficial for us. Enjoy the discount code HARVEST15. Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet.
1: For many years, I did conscientiously. I sort of stopped modeling for, I don't know, eight years, yeah, maybe more. And that was a very kind of conscious decision to start working in other areas. So I had, had I set up my own company. I wrote articles for different newspapers and eventually wrote the book. Um, I was acting. I started making films as a director. I started doing all these other things and and sort of ignored fashion. Um, in the last year or so, I've changed my attitude and now
0: actually I'm much more engaged with the fashion again. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with the entrepreneur, actress, model and filmmaker Lily Cole, who is tirelessly advocating for socio-political and environmental issues. Lily has spoken to Davos, our web summit. My first question to her was, given a successful career, what led her on the road of activism?
1: Well, it's been a long journey. It began, well, I mean, it began probably before I was working. It just my mum is a big influence on me in terms of drawing my attention to different issues around the world when I was growing up. And um, and then when I started modelling as a teenager, because I was quite successful in a way, it attracted then uh, both charities wanting me to help them or to you know support their work, but also some media scrutiny around some of the brands that I was working with. I kind of started investigating more and trying to understand both the brands I was working with, but also the charities who were were approaching me, the work they were doing. And I sort of went on a bit of a journey of learning, of trying to understand the world and, you know, the different problems we have and um, why we have these problems and which ones felt the most important for me to put my energy into. And that was a process that, you know, is ongoing today, but at that time took, you know, a few years of, of really trying to think through some of these issues and for me it felt like the environmental kind of situation was the area I felt I wanted to focus on most because I could see how enormous, you know, how fundamental it is as an issue and and that it affects every other issue, that if we don't have a healthy environment it will affect every other social issue whether it's human rights or animal rights etc. Um, and the other area I really became focused on was economics so looking at the supply chains of the brands I was working on and just seeing that in the capitalist system that we have, that economics is sort of running the world. And if we don't try and change systemically the, the kind of uh, way we make things, the way we buy things, then charities will always be kind of trying to band aid
0: the different problems that our economic system is creating. Did you study to uh, be uh, more aware of what's happening, about the roots of the problem?
1: Mm, I was supposed to do, um, I mean I studied, during that time I was doing my A-levels in England and I studied politics and I studied history, so yes, a little bit. I was supposed to do, I got a place at Cambridge University to do social political science, which would have been a kind of um, a study of that area somewhat. I actually changed to art history, but I always, with my art history course, tried to bring in the kind of social political aspects too. I would say most of my learning, though, didn't happen in school. It happened in the world. You know, it happened in conversations with people, in reading books, in travelling and seeing different communities. I mean, for me, the world was the, the biggest education.
0: Plus, you had access with your job and your career to amazing people. And I see in your podcast, of one of the first interviews with, with Elon Musk. So you could have access to lots of uh, very interesting people.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been so lucky that... Not only did my job allow me to travel, and that travel, whenever I would do a photo shoot somewhere, I would always try and stay another day or two days or a week, and it allowed me to see all these different communities around the world and just get a sense of the different ways that people were living and the different uh, options that we have as humans. But it also opened the doors to be able to meet very interesting people, from, you know, Way Davis was on the podcast, um, Elon Musk, as you mentioned, many other... Many other interesting people and actually that was one of the reasons I decided to write the book and to, to do the podcast as I sort of wanted to share the learnings I'd had, the access I had to this information. Yeah it became a way to try to share
0: that. You mentioned uh, your mom, uh, I'm very interested in your background and how you grew up as a child with um, environmental issues, how you were raised. Yeah,
1: yeah sure, so my, I was raised in London, my mom raised me and my sister, my dad wasn't around and my mum is very ill. So it's actually quite a difficult uh, situation for her because she was a single parent with two children and very, she was very ill herself. Not much money, I kind of like, I'm amazed how she did it, <laughs> you know? Wow. Now I'm a mum, I look at her and I'm just like, wow, how did you do that? But um, environmental issues were not her focus. I think she's not been, um, in some ways, she's like an amazing environmentalist because she doesn't waste anything. So she comes from a generation, she grew up in the mountains in Wales where there was no money whatsoever and everything was reused and recycled. And I think that generation had a different attitude to reusing and not wasting things. More um, naturally,
0: more organically, okay.
1: Yeah, I think one, because of poverty often, there wasn't the resources, and also because mass production hasn't really kicked in yet. And so there wasn't just this availability of cheap crap everywhere <laughs> that we have nowadays to contend with. So her attitude is one of very, very, very low waste. But it wasn't that she was talking to us about the environment. She wasn't really aware of, like, I think the, now she is, but at the time of growing up, like climate change and, Um, the environmental issues. She was more focused on social issues, so concerned about poverty, concerned about hunger around the world, concerned you know, when there were natural disasters. She's a very, very strong kind of conscious, if that's uh, like conscience, and yeah, so she would talk to us about what was happening. It's actually not that cold. It's like a little bit cold when you first go in and then once you start swimming, it felt, I didn't feel cold at all. I feel like it's a way to, like, ground yourself in the, in the local environment, you know?
0: It was Lily Cole after a swim in the Aegean Sea and connecting to Turkey. The environmental activist runs a podcast called Who Cares Wins, where she is raising questions like, is technology the solution or the problem? Is meat killing us? Is growth good? I asked her, if after interviewing so many people, like Elon Musk, for her podcast, she had found some solutions to these questions.
1: Well, I think the point of posing those questions was to explore, explore complexity to the answers. That there's nothing, there's no simple answers. I think there's no simple answers on any issue, and in the environmental landscape, there are so many different opinions, different solutions, and we're contending with a problem so vast and so complex. I don't think there is any silver bullet or I don't think one person could ever say this is the way we're going to solve the problem. And if they said that, I would not trust them. (laughs) Um, Actually, I think it is a complex topic and we need complex solutions and we need dialogue and communication and collaboration because we're all in it together to try and work out the best ways through. So yes, it's theory. there's no answer. The point of the question is to show that there are many different ways of answering the question and to allow the reader or the listener to make their own decisions based on that. And
0: yourself, after such a long journey uh, interrogating people, how did you change along the way? Again, it's a kind of constant evolution for me. I try to like
1: align my own um, awareness of the challenges we face and the solutions that exist with my own personal choices practice what I preach, essentially, because that feels really important. I feel like that's the, that's the power that each of us has, is to influence our small our small piece of this puzzle, and that we all have our responsibility to do that, especially if we have the luxury of, of time, of knowledge, of, you know, there are some people who are just literally trying to survive in this world, and to expect them to be solving the climate crisis is not realistic or fair. For, so people who are in a privileged position who can educate themselves on kind of conscious consumerism and and can maybe afford to make better choices, I think it's really, really important that we do try. All that being said, I also think it's impossible to be perfect and it's better that we have many, many, many imperfect environmentalists than a handful of perfect ones, (laughs) if that is even possible. It's impossible
0: to be perfect, yeah. Yeah,
1: so I have to also not give myself, in the past I was giving myself a really hard time and I've had to try and be gentler with myself. Um, to find maybe more balance um, in these choices. Yes,
0: yeah, I think it's very interesting because we're travelling to harvest, but also uh, so you cannot be uh, completely all black or white. So you have to also, totally. Yeah,
1: and I had actually an amazing experience yesterday at the breathwork session with Lisa. I've worked with her a few times. I think she's extraordinary. The work she does, she does, and. I had very mixed feelings about coming to Harvest. Of course I wanted to come. It sounds beautiful. I know Roman, who the organizer, and many of the people who came. Uh, I was really excited to meet Gabo Mate and to meet, finally, Wade Davis, because we've spoken a lot on the phone, but we hadn't, we hadn't met in person. And so I had a long list of reasons why I'd want to come, but I felt guilty about it, you know, that is it, I often feel this way when I'm invited to things abroad, you know, is it necessary to travel? And I arrived yesterday, when I arrived, sorry, the day before yesterday, I think I arrived with this feeling of guilt, you know, of like, oh, we're in such a privileged place and like, how can it be that we're in this like beautiful place when well, I know there's so many problems in the world today? And I was always sort of wrestling with that. And interestingly, when I did the breathwork session last night, it really, I don't know, it had some really a, a kind of amazing shift in me. I think where I sort of let, let go a bit of my judgment of myself, like my self judgment, And the thinking I had, it's hard to articulate, but it was very similar to what you said about black and white, that there is no black and white, there is no kind of right and wrong and perfect solutions, and everyone has a different path to take. And this is my path right now, and this is where I'm supposed to be right now. And so to let go of the judgments I might have and just trust in this journey. And I think that's true of everyone, that we each have a different... So it's not not easy to say, oh, you should never fly or you should never do this, or you should never do that, because actually each person has their own journey and it's about the intention with which you're maybe taking that journey
0: that's important. So yeah, I don't know if that's hard to articulate. No, I understand this totally and uh, I was thinking a lot about that and to keep an open mind also you need to travel and to see people and to meet people. um,
1: And I explored that uh... paradox around flying a lot in the book and I tried to do it very honestly that it's been the area that I've kind of wrestled with most, with my own, trying to kind of look at my own impact. If I didn't travel, i try to travel less than I do in the past, like less now than I did in the past, and I always take trains when I can, but, and I have electric car and electric bike and blah, 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 blah. But if I didn't travel the world, I wouldn't be able to do the work I'm doing. You know, it's the ability to have access to these different perspectives, communities, um, politicians, that's actually so fundamental for the work I've been trying to do and so that path feels right to me although I'm aware that it's a problem in itself and that's a paradox and nothing simple.
0: Yeah and thanks for raising it and sharing it because it's very uh, honest of you. Uh, On a day-to-day what are, because I know you're doing a lot and you call for action, what are the little things you do you didn't do before? Well, I'm
1: increasingly vegan. I sometimes eat, I call myself, it's funny because Mark has this pagan diet. I used to always joke I was a pagan in my diet because it's like <laughs> vaguely vegan is vegan and then I have sometimes, because I eat eggs and then sometimes I eat fish, so it'd be like, pagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I try to avoid um, industrial animal agriculture. That feels super important to me. I try and like reuse and mend things rather than throw them away, especially clothes and repair. And I just had this beautiful long skirt that I've had for ages that keeps getting torn. So I took it to a local seamstress and she's made it into a short skirt and she's making another one for my daughter oh, from the material. amazing, okay. So things like that. And then I try, and this is not possible every single time, but when I'm buying new things, I try and look for the most like organic or fair trade or responsible kind of producer of that product which in some areas like food and uh, bathroom products and fashion is increasingly easier to do still hard but it's easier whereas things like electronics and technology it's almost impossible so navigating that's the kind of consumer power it feels really important and then looking at yeah like ways of kind of traveling less flying less and um and I was like almost two years I did without flying and taking trains and uh, my electric car when I could. Right now I've been in a much more hectic schedule, but I'm trying to address that too. And I also try and always say, and it's so important to say that I'm not perfect and I'm not trying to like represent perfection in, and I think actually sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a big problem in this movement that people focus so much on the individual and it's like, okay, well, what do you do? And of course the individual actions are really important, but also it's so hard to do the individual actions if there's not systemic change. And so a large part of my work is how do we make the policies and the companies take more responsibility so that it's easier on individuals, so that all the onus isn't on individuals, you know, to like research every single product they buy in order to not feel like they're contributing to the destruction of the planet. And I think that's really on politicians, on on corporations, and there's this sort of dance between our power as individuals and our voice as individuals, and our need to influence policymakers and corporations to make it easier for us to just live our lives without destroying the planet or exploiting people in the process.
0: How are you using your voice, Um, because uh, you're a celebrity and gives you access to a lot of people, how are you using your voice trying to change the systems?
1: Well, I think that it's a large part of why I do the book and the podcast um, is trying to generate awareness around this conversation. I don't do, I do some kind of like classical activism when I feel called to it. So it's not something that I'm like seeking to do. But if an issue really upsets me, then I will speak out on it. So recently there was this um, Rwanda agreement. I don't know if you followed that in the UK politics where um, the Home Office in the UK announced, as part of this new borders bill, that they're gonna send some of the as- illegal asylum seekers, so asylum seekers that arrive illegally to the country, to Rwanda for processing. Yes, okay,
0: yeah.
1: I think it's so, so fucked up and so dystopian and just actually, I f- like beyond actually my lowest expectations of what the UK would start doing, especially at a time when we've got increasing migration flows because of climate change and because of um, wars globally. It just feels so, um, so inhuman. It's actually, as one of the refugees I spoke to said, it's actually like state-sponsored human trafficking, is what's happening, you
0: know. Uh, What is worrying you the most if you had to choose?
1: I think when I wrote my book and I was looking at all these different solution areas, the one area that I was the least optimistic about, because it doesn't feel like it's going in a positive direction, Whereas a lot of the issues that we're dealing with are terrible, but they, a lot of them are going in a more positive direction. Firstly, the treatment of refugees, like I just mentioned, in some countries seems to be going in a very negative direction. And also I would say that they're kind of actually like social media and media monopolies, because I think the social media and, me- and the media is so essential that it's healthy and balanced in order for us to have kind of correct information being shared and also be able to have then a functioning democracy. And I think the kind of, the fact that Facebook owns 80% of social media traffic, that much of the other 20% is about to potentially be owned by one person, Elon Musk, that those types of monopolizations of information I find really scary um, because it has the power to, to influence the way that billions of people are thinking and therefore influence all of these other solutions we're talking about, whether it's climate action or refugee policies or democracy itself.
0: And so that's an area that I feel very um, concerned by. Thanks for sharing. Uh, what were the reactions, uh, positive or negative, that surprised you after you published your book? I think I was surprised that it was all positive. Or it seemed all
1: positive, what came to all me.
0: Positive,
1: yeah. yeah, I think I was scared when I published it that it would be like... Um, that, because, you know, whenever you speak about something or you put your head above the parapet, it's the phrase in, in English, you're like liable to be like shot down, you know, like, it's oh, quite exposing, yeah. exposes, right? Yeah, exposing, yeah. yes. I see. Um, <laughs> and so I think I was nervous about that, but actually I found people very receptive and kind of almost grateful for, for
0: sharing that information. So that felt really positive. In Kaplankaya, Lily Cole gave a speech appreciated by harvesters.
1: Yeah. Cole I didn't know her and it was a sweet surprise I think how he talked about how we can really impact the world through our daily choices in what we consume you know, from clothing to food it doesn't need to be like a huge master plan, but just being thoughtful about the daily choices that you make. I, I love the phrase that she used that whenever you buy a product, it's like you're casting in a vote for a company and understanding their behavior and their, their ethics is something that we should be more curious about. So I, I love that.
0: I was curious to know if after being a famous model, Lily felt kind of disconnected from the fashion industry.
1: For many years, I did conscientiously. I sort of stopped modelling for I don't know eight years, yeah, maybe more. And that was a very kind of conscious decision to start working in other areas. So I had had, I set up my own company. I wrote articles for different newspapers and eventually wrote the book. Um, I was acting. I started making films as a director. I started doing all these other things and and sort of ignored fashion. Um, In the last year or so, I've changed my attitude. And now actually I'm much more engaged with the fashion again. Not on a day-to-day level. Like it's still a very, very small amount of my time. But I'm much more open to it in my heart. Yeah, yeah. And I'm engaged both in terms of the sustainability conversation, because actually it's really advanced so much since when I was working on it 15 years ago, you know. And now I've started working with this UN organization, the UN ECE that are looking at how we can build um, tools to help with supply chain transparency. Um, and they're looking first at cotton and leather. And so I've been working with them on that and other initiatives around sustainable fashion. But also because actually there are really great people and lots of creativity in that world. And it's quite nice to to be connected to that occasionally when it feels right and the, the right job comes in.
0: So um, I've sort of been yeah, reopening that relationship. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did you? Ties with some brands. Are you selecting the brands you work with?
1: Yeah, I'm very selective about which brands I work with, um, and that's been the case for a long time. And when I first started doing that, uh, like 15, no, like I started doing that when I was like 20, so like 14 years ago. It felt risky, you know. It felt like I would just lose work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I
1: did. <laughs> um, now it is
0: brave yeah to do that yeah
1: well i i mean i remember my agents at the time saying aren't you afraid you're biting at the hand that feeds you and it was true you know it was like i did lose probably a lot of work over that but now interestingly it's opened up opportunities because there are more and more brands trying to create things in better ways and sometimes those brands come to me and then it's like a, a kind of perfect arrangement to support them
0: okay so you think. Finally, the industry, the fashion industry, has made some efforts. Oh, for sure. I mean, it still has so far to go. And we have
1: a different challenge now, which is that because sustainability has become more fashionable, everyone's sort of jumping on the bandwagon of talking about sustainability. And there's very little kind of legal structures around what you're allowed to say, what claims you're allowed to make, how you prove them, which is something that the UNEC is trying to help with, these tools because it ends up, you have a lot of greenwashing. So you almost have a different problem now, which is a lot of greenwashing to be okay. navigated. But at least the appetite is there. That's to me, is progress. Um, and and I think there are also genuine efforts being made within the industry, because I think a lot of people in the industry have woken up to the severity of the climate crisis, um, are also aware that there are more and more kind of policy rules coming in. So the EU announced new policies this year that are quite strict on, on fashion and the textile industry. So yeah, it does feel like it's changing, arguably not as fast as it needs to, but it is definitely, compared to 10, 15 years ago, it has gone from being a niche, sort of like undesirable conversation that felt a bit kind of like hempy and ugly, I think, (laughs) in people's minds, to feeling like so important and kind of every single brand has to have some commitment, uh, ESG officer or, you know, some kind
0: of... um, dialogue in this space and about the consummation uh, how do you say consummation like uh, always to buy new clothes and mm, everything consumption is there something yeah. to be done? consumption is there something to be done uh, in the fashion industry or it's against the essence of the fashion I think it's I mean it's such a good, good question
1: and good point of course sustainable fashion is an oxymoron right because sustainability is implying longevity and fashion is implying newness. It's a very good point. I don't think it's only fashion. I think it's true of most other industries, and I think it's kind of a a consequence of capitalism and globalization and the way that those forces have played out for the last 100 years, that we've had planned obsolescence and designed obsolescence in so many industries, whether it's light bulbs, plastic water bottles, cars that are manufactured or clothes. There has been this tendency to produce things that are um, not, not made to last. Yeah. that uh, sometimes actually have designed obsolescence and planned obsolescence in them. And then we're constantly trying to like, persuade the consumer to buy a new version of the product twice a year, every year, three times a year, whatever the, the, the regularity is. Um, with very little mindfulness around the dis- how those products are being disposed, if they're able to be recycled or not, and you've just got insane amounts of waste as a consequence, as well as all the emissions of that production. I was in Chile recently, um, with the UNEC and I went up to the Atacama Desert in the north, in the very north of the Atacama Desert there are these like literally like mountains of clothes. Chile is the second biggest importer of secondhand clothes in the world after Ghana. And a lot of those clothes just like end up just literally being dumped in the desert and sometimes burned. Okay. And you can look it up online, and you'll see this footage of literally like mountains of clothes. Um, wow. okay. A lot of which is like nearly new or new, you know, it's just like fast fashion that um, is garbage in a way. And I remember when I left, I was just thinking like how, at what point in our history did fashion become trash? Yes. Because actually historically, fashion was something that was like high kind of quality was around craft, handmade, and all around the world. You have examples of the kind of textile industry being this like really kind of um, treasured and respected area of craft, uh, very female-led. Still today, I think sixty to eighty percent of the garment industry are women. And in the shift towards fast fashion and factory production and sweatshop labor, not only have we created this environmental problem, but we've also created the social problem of. All of these kind of makers losing their jobs, you know, and being kind of displaced by factories. So, all that to say, we have a huge problem with overconsumption, but I don't think it's particular to fashion. Yeah, um, But fashion has its own responsibility of combating these practices of waste. And actually, the EU policy I mentioned that came out this year specifically said we have to end fast fashion, which is quite a heavy statement for the EU to say, you know. But it's but it's true.
0: Yeah. You have a daughter. What would you be proud of teaching her?
1: I mean, she's teaching me, (laughs) is the reality. I always try and remember that, and she really does. She's wonderful. And I think the children are teaching us, and it's so important also that the dialogue goes both ways. It's like, what can we teach the next generation, and also what can we learn from the next generation? mm -hmm. That's
0: true. Um, But if if you wanted to transmit her something...
1: I think it's a love of nature, and just to kind of... a a connection, you know, a connection with the world around you, a sense of care for the world around you, and the animals, the people, the trees, the places that we inhabit and touch, but also the ones that we can't see, that the things we buy are are touching. And so I try to gently communicate, you know, that idea in a soft way, like, you know, what's the difference between a happy cow and a sad cow? You know, why why am I trying to not, like, get her ice creams? Yes. Okay. If, if I don't know if it's organic or it's a vegan one, you know? I try not to be militant about it, but just to open her minds to, like, why those choices feel important to me.
0: And children are open to this. Yeah, she yeah.
1: loves it. When I first started talking to her about it, she made a whole book. She literally, like, stitched a whole book about happy cows and sad cows. So <laughs> <laughs> cute. She's so cute. Um, and just enjoying nature and just, yeah, respecting that there's life in everything and yeah, to, to, to enjoy that. Because I think that's the approach of environmentalism that's, that's about actually a better quality of life as opposed to it being a sacrifice. It's like, how can we enjoy this planet more? And in respecting this planet more, we're more
0: likely to have a sustainable relationship to it. It is time for the great harvest of the day in Kaplankaya. If something could be done easily and would make the world a better place, what would it be for Lilico?
1: On an individual kind of citizen level, if everyone was just to stop eating industrial animal agriculture, and so therefore to reduce the amount of meat and dairy that we're eating, and sort of just end this awful industry of um, of the commodification of animals in factories that would have a seismic effect. And it's a choice that everyone can just make overnight. Well, many people could make, maybe not everyone. And yeah, that would have a seismic effect, I think both in the billions of animals that get put through that awful system, um, but also in our carbon emissions and our greenhouse gas emissions, because the meat and dairy industry is considered either first or second biggest emitter of all industries, depending on how you calculate. And if it's second, it's second after fossil fuels. And fossil fuels is harder to, for individuals to change overnight, whereas what we eat, we can all, many of us can make that choice quite quickly. If I was a politician, I would say what I'd like to do over, happen overnight is carbon taxes, pollution taxes we put internationally. That would just change the whole economy, and that's what most economists say needs to happen. And if I was a angel or like a fairy, I would just try and change the mindset overnight and shift the global consciousness into one that's, I guess, more about caring and sharing and not wasting and just loving this planet
0: and each other. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Cole's story, how she became conscious of social issues, how she distanced herself from fashion, and how she's starting to work again with this industry. If you did, please leave us a good review. And until next time...